All right, we are in a series on Jesus, the most fascinating, most important person in all of history, Jesus Christ, the hope of the world. And we are in a series in the Gospel of Mark, so grab your Bible, turn on your Bible, and uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. We have looked at Jesus and his authority, Jesus and his deity so far in our study. We have looked at uh, Jesus and forgiveness, uh, Jesus and healing, Jesus and legalism. And today, we're going to look at Jesus and leadership, specifically leadership development as Jesus appoints the twelve apostles. Now there's lots of different ways people come at this passage and the tendency is is to come to passages like this and just to list a bunch of principles on leadership development. I'm reluctant to do that because I'm not sure that's the divine intent behind this episode. So what I want to do is while I want to talk about leadership and hopefully talk about some important valuable leadership, leadership development principles, I want to ask four questions of this passage. First of all, the question how, then the question what, then the question why, and then the question who. So I want to begin by asking the question, how did Jesus prepare to appoint these 12? And then what exactly did he do? That's the what. Then why? Why did he appoint the 12? And then finally, and I wish we had more time on this one, who exactly are these guys? What are they like? But before we read our paragraph, I want to begin by reading the preceding paragraph. So let's start in order to get some context in verse 7 of Mark chapter 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan around Tyre and Sidon, and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him, for he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the son of God. Now the uh, demonic forces are ahead of the game. They're more clear about the identity of Jesus at this point than the crowds. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was because the time wasn't right and because these were hardly the right messengers. So that's the preceding paragraph. Now let's continue and let's read our paragraph. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, And his brother John, to them he gave the name Bonagiris, which means sons of thunder. 
Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Here Mark is pointing to the death of Jesus. So what I want to do before we get to our paragraph is note this preceding paragraph because it gives us the context. In this prior paragraph, the emphasis of focus is on Jesus' popularity. In our paragraph, it's on Jesus' plan. So we have Jesus, Jesus if you will, leadership popularity, and then we have Jesus' leadership plan. His plan is a leader. Uh, but when we read verse 8 and we look at these different regions that are mentioned, we don't quite get the import. So look at this map with me. What I've done in this map, this is a map of Israel, Palestine, I've circled the five regions or actually six that are mentioned in verse 8 in order to see the distances people were traveling. So the Sea of Galilee is that little blue area up in the northern part of this map above the big circle which is uh, the eastern side of the Jordan River and if you look down at Idumea, down at the bottom, to travel from there up to where Jesus was in the Sea of Galilee was 100, 120 miles. And the point Mark is making in mentioning these different regions is that Jesus was enormously popular and at a day and age where people mostly walked People were walking over 100 miles in hardly easy terrain in order to seek out Jesus. So Mark is telling us that Jesus' popularity is really off the charts. Mark is telling us in mentioning these different areas that Jesus is in the process of turning the world upside down. That this was unheard of. So what we see in this first paragraph is Jesus goes big. But then as soon as we come to our paragraph, Jesus goes small. And that the one paragraph follows the other demonstrate that Jesus' commitment wasn't to draw a crowd, but to deploy an army. That Jesus ultimately isn't looking for fans, he's looking for for followers. Now, Jesus will not neglect the crowds, but Jesus is not looking for superficiality. He's looking for substance. So what we have here in the paragraph, our paragraph that begins in verse 13, is a tremendous shift. A a, a shift in the Gospels. A shift from big to small. A shift from Jesus doing ministry primarily before the masses to Jesus developing others behind the scenes to carry on the ministry after his death. And that will be true from this point on throughout the rest of the Gospels. We'll see Jesus' public ministry. We'll see Jesus' private ministry. It won't be an either or. It will be a both and. Jesus will never ignore the masses, but increasingly he will concentrate on the twelve and the others that were his followers. He will give himself to leadership development. He will give himself to the next generation. Now let's think about that for a moment. In healthy churches, both of these are always at play. 
There's the come and see to the masses, to the crowds. And then there's the go and tell, go and die to the followers, the smaller group. So here at Wheaton Bible Church, we're all about the come and see. We welcome and we love visitors. That's why we work hard on our website to keep it up to date, to keep it attractive so people can get information about us. It's why I say over and over, uh, we're a hospital, not a country club. We welcome all comers. We're so often an emergency room. It's why we do Alpha. It's why we do our, 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 our support groups. It's why we're so involved in West Chicago, in, in Pointe. It's why every year we spend a whole lot of time, a whole lot of resources on this wonderful event for women, night before Christmas. It's why we invite people to our worship services, to our small groups. Uh, to our baptism services like we had last night and on and on. We love come and see. We love speaking to the crowd, speaking to the world, lifting up Jesus. But to follow Christ, to be a Christian, is to move from come and see to go and die. Go and tell. It's to understand that at some point you, you no longer watch Jesus or watch other people serve Jesus, watch other people lift up Jesus, watch other people give to the cause of Christ. You serve, you lift up Christ, uh, you give. And Jesus, knowing that the only way the world will change is if some transition from come and see to go and die, go and tell, here shifts. So this is a major transition in the themes of the Gospels. And by the way, let me just say parenthetically, when you watch the news and you get all bummed out and you think about all the suffering, all the bad stuff, all the tragedy, all the pain in the world, and, and when it washes across your doorstep and, and you're tempted to say, where is Jesus? Man, what in the world is going on? I think in our paragraph today we have part of the answer. And that is that Jesus is going deep. Jesus is going behind the scenes. Jesus is going under the surface to form a group, always a smaller group, who will give their lives for him. You want Jesus. We want Jesus to go big. And often, often Jesus goes small. So the first paragraph is come and see. The second paragraph is go and tell or go and die. Now, let's get after our questions. Question number one. How in the world does Jesus prepare for this monumental shift? And the answer is he prays. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells us this. Mark omits it because Mark's Gospel account is the cliff note version of the Gospels. It's just briefer. So look at this passage from Luke chapter 6. Same passage, same account, but look at this first sentence. One of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. And then the Luke passage goes on just like our passage in Mark and lists them by name. 
So kingdom leadership. Jesus' leadership understands there comes a time when you shut off your phone. There comes a time when you stop texting. Uh, You stop posting. You stop tweeting. And you shut the door. Or you you get away. And you get alone and you get really quiet and you listen to God's word and you pray. And because of our sinful fallen nature and because of the temptation uh, coming at us, this is critical for us as followers of Christ all the time. But it's especially critical at significant junctures or points or transitions in our life. And that's what we have here in Jesus' ministry. So uh, before, you're contemplating um, asking somebody to marry you. You're contemplating a job change. Or you're contemplating um, uh, getting involved in a ministry or all sorts of different things. What we see here is Jesus prays and Jesus was sinless. Now think about what we just read in the Luke account. Jesus is up all night. Hour after hour, he's praying. God, give me wisdom. Through the entire night, he is praying. Illustrating how significant this moment was to our Lord illustrating how important leadership development, uh, discipleship, developing the next generation is to our Lord, and illustrating how very important people are to the redemptive purposes of God. Jesus spends the entire night praying. And over and over in the Gospels, we will see Jesus model the priority of prayer. And God's people, as God's people, we, we get our Bibles and, and, and we sit down and we open them and, and, and we study them and there, there are certain passages uh, uh, we memorize and, and we listen to God and we write things down and then we pray and we pray and we pray. We don't, as God's people, Facebook, what should I do? We get before God's face and ask, Father, what should I do? And that's Jesus here before this uh, transition. It's Jesus praying. So where is your mountain? Where do you go to pray? To seek God's face. Here Jesus is praying for the redemptive purposes of the gospel. He's praying, God, protect the gospel. God, give me wisdom. Give these men wisdom and grace that they might be fearless with the gospel, that they might be willing to die as I will die for the gospel. And I read this, what does a preacher say? Well, I read this and I think, you know, if we're not staying up late at night, if we're not periodically uh, going all out in prayer for the people on our street, who is? 
If we're not staying up late at night praying for our neighbors or our coworkers or our, our family members or our, our friends that, that, that need Jesus or are working through certain issues, who is? If we're not praying for the Christians in Syria, uh, for our, uh, our MOVE in, uh, initiative in, in Europe, or for Hope Kenya, uh, for children and uh, orphans around the world, or in the DR, or Haiti, for example, who is? Prayer is never a panacea. Prayer, prayer never removes all our problems, makes all our problems go away, but prayer does open us to God's plan. It calls down thunder and it changes things and that's exactly what we see here because this ragtag group of no names, nobodies, I'll come back to that, will turn the world upside down. And Jesus spent all night praying. Rob, why, why should I pray? Well, there's lots of reasons, but one reason is because Jesus prayed. We pray because Jesus prayed. Kingdom leaders pray. Let me go on. Question number two. So if that's how Jesus prepared for this, what exactly does Jesus do here in our paragraph? Well, look at verse 13. According to verse 13 and the first half of verse 14, Jesus delegates. Delegates. He appoints the 12 to be apostles. Now, this is where I want to drill down on this for a moment, make a couple observations, and this is where it gets interesting. And I am about to say maybe some things that won't sit well with some of you. Uh, But I, I just want you to know, I really don't wake up on Sunday mornings and think, you know, I hope, Lord, I can become a pinata today when I preach. And I, and I can find things to say to make people mad, so they'll just want to whack and whack and whack. I don't really get up first thing in the morning and say, on a Sunday morning, say to Rhonda, hey, Rhonda, I'm just, I'm just praying today God's going to make me a pinata. Other preachers have talked about that, real, really not what we're trying to do. But I've got a couple pinata-like points here, okay? And I've already talked about giving. It's a good morning. So let me show you. Look a little more closely at verses 13 and 14. What I want you to see, first of all, is that Jesus does the picking. Jesus does the choosing. Jesus does the appointing. Jesus does the designating. You and I think we choose God. The reality is just the opposite. God chooses us. So as we read in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world. Just as he chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. These men had been around Jesus. If you go back to Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 2, we discover that Jesus has already called five of these 12 disciples. They've been following Jesus. We're probably a a, a little over one year into Jesus' three-year earthly ministry here, even though it's early in the Gospel of Mark. But we're probably over a year or one-third of the way through Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, So Jesus isn't guessing here. These guys have been around Jesus. Jesus has been observing him. But the point Mark is making is that salvation, sanctification, gifting, calling for ministry, all of that is a God thing. Jesus is taking the initiative here. 
Now, that's uh, completely in contrast to what went on in the first century Jewish world with rabbis and their pupils, rabbis and their students, because students in the first century always chose their rabbis, just like today, students choose their colleges. But here, the kingdom of God is of a whole different order. We are enslaved to sin. Paul will tell us, Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So discipleship isn't about what we do for Christ. It's about what Christ makes of us. And the word appoint, by the way, also means made. M-A-D-E. Just as in Genesis 1-1, God made the heavens and the earth, here Jesus is making his team, making a new day. As the 12 tribes of Israel give way to the 12 apostles. What does that mean? That means we don't make leaders. We don't make converts. We don't make Christians. God does. And our, our goal, our privilege, and our responsibility as a church, I'm talking about the, uh, our church now, is to train those God has called. That they might be all that God wants them to be. Uh, so let me just apply this to myself. I, I, I'm not doing what I do because... I'm somebody special or I'm worthy. I'm hardly special and I am hardly worthy. Just ask Rhonda and the kids. I'm here because of God's grace. Because God's got a sense of humor. Because of God's mercy. Because of God's call. And that is true for each and every one of us. So there's no room for arrogance there's no room for, for turning ministry as, as so many people do into something that's about an individual. Uh, but on the other hand, neither do we bury our talents because it's something God has given us uh, to use to glorify him. So we live by faith in his grace. Jesus calls, Jesus designates, Jesus appoints, Jesus commissions, and Jesus is the one that takes the initi- initiative. All right, now there's another pinata point here. You ready? We also see in these two verses that Jesus goes and gets men. Men. Let me preface this by saying, Rhonda and I have five daughters. All right? I'm a minority in a sorority. I've said that before. Five daughters. <laughs> All of them. Uh, are strong-minded, highly gifted, uh, freely speak their minds, highly intelligent. I, 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 I have said before, uh, my kids are more intelligent than I am, and they say, Dad, that's not a big deal. <laughs> All five of our girls are either working on or have postgraduate degrees. Rhonda, my wife, as you know, is a physician. So I say all this because we're not exactly into saying in our house, 
oh, you're a woman, take a back seat. <laughs> Don't do that. I'm surrounded by people that are, that are way more gifted in, in many ways, uh, way more intelligent than me, and that's before I even get out the door. And I am totally fine with that as a man. But the reality here is that although women will be at the center of Jesus' ministry and that Jesus is revolutionary in the way he honors and involves and empowers women and women will be among the first to experience the resurrection of Jesus, here Jesus goes and gets men. Not because they're smarter, not because they're more gifted, but because it's God's plan. And then not surprisingly, a little later in the New Testament, when it comes to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, uh, we read Paul saying God has reserved the office of elder for men. And that has nothing to do with superiority. Nothing. And then the New Testament tells us when it comes to spiritual gifts, these gifts that God gives every single believer, gifts like teaching, leadership, encouragement, giving, all the gifts, they are equally and evenly distributed among men and women. But the office of elder is reserved in the New Testament for men. I believe that, we believe that. I know that's controversial, but I want you to understand, Jesus going and getting men here points to that, alludes to that. All right, I'm really done with these pinata points, and it's too bad this passage doesn't have something to say about the definition of marriage. You know, traditional marriage or same-sex marriage. It'd be fun to continue this. <laughs> but it's not there. Sorry. So the last thing I want to say about these two verses is look at verse 14 again. Notice the word apostle. An apostle is a sent one. S-E-N-T. That's what the word literally means. It's both a noun and a verb. Sent An apostle is a sent one. Now the word is used to describe different people, different situations in the New Testament. So for example, you go to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. There Jesus is called the apostle and high priest. Uh, later in the New Testament, Paul will be called an apostle. Uh, and Paul will write about false apostles. And then when we go to the gift passage, the spiritual gifts passage, it's like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, we will see apostleship is a, a gift. But here in Mark chapter 3, it refers to these 12 who will be with Jesus and who will experience the resurrection. So Jesus chooses 12 who have been sitting under his teaching, who have been following him, who are sitting under his authority, and he designates them apostles, the sent ones. Now, let me stop for just a moment because some of us have trouble with authority. Uh, we really like to be in authority. We just don't like to be under authority, especially spiritual authority and if that's an issue for you one of the ways you can tell it is because you have this tendency to hop from one church to another and when somebody says something or does something you don't like man you're gone and if you peel that away a little often what's behind that is an issue with authority 
But I want you to note these 12 were under authority before they were ever in authority. And Jesus is preparing them to lead, but their leadership will be born in years of sitting under Jesus' authority. Being under authority is a good thing. It's how we get it, changing the world. Okay, question number three. So I've talked about the uh, how and, and the what. Let's go to this why question. Why does Jesus do this? Why this transformation? Why this monumental shift? Well, Jesus in our passage gives us two reasons. Follow and fish. That he might create a company, a team, a movement characterized by people who follow him and fish for him. This is the second half of verse 14 through verse 15. And this is a different way of saying what Jesus has already said in Mark chapter 1 and verse 17. When after calling Peter and Peter's brother Andrew, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Men, women, students, and and children. Here in these two verses, verses 14 and 15, with different words, Jesus tells us an apostle does the same thing. So whether we're disciples, whether we're uh, simple followers of Christ, or whether we're apostles, there's two essential things we do. We follow Jesus, and we lift up Jesus. So look at how Jesus says this in our passage. He says, first of all, that they might be with him. Mark tells us that they might be with him. In other words, discipleship is always a relationship before it's a responsibility. It's a who before a what. Jesus is inviting these men to know him, to listen to him, to listen to him, to learn from him, to to sit under his feet, to, to enjoy him, to watch him, to observe him, to eat with him, to minister with him, to serve with him, to submit to him, to trust him, to worship him, to live vertically. In the presence of King Jesus. And to this end, Jesus will train these guys. He will shape them. He will refine them. And sometimes their joy and their laughter will be out of this world. And sometimes, especially as the cross gets closer, the darkness and the despair and the horror and and the fear will almost seem insurmountable. And it's all part of the school of discipleship. And that was true with the 12. It's been true with me. And it's true with you. And this opportunity to be with Jesus, what a privilege. And he offers to each and every one of us who will come to Christ by faith and embrace him by faith as our our Lord and Savior. Uh, And there's no greater privilege, no greater training, no greater opportunity, no greater peace, no greater purpose, no greater joy, no greater fulfillment than this. Jesus appoints the 12 to follow him, to be with him. How about you? Do you hang with Jesus? Do you live in Jesus? Do you submit to Jesus? Do you walk with Jesus? Then the second thing we see here, Jesus appoints them 
uh, these 12 to send them out, Mark tells us. To send them out to do two things. To preach and to demonstrate Jesus' authority by uh, driving out demons. And as we'll see in a moment, to, to heal the sick. And this is the fishing part of Mark 1.17. This is delegation. Here Jesus is delegating the most important, the most solemn responsibility on the planet. Announcing the good news that Christ has died for sins and offers forgiveness to all who will turn from their sin and believe. Jesus is entrusting this to these twelve. Jesus is asking them to preach what he will preach to do, what he will do. And so let me show you what this looks like. Uh, Look uh, at Mark chapter 6. And we're going to pick up in the paragraph that begins in the middle of verse 6. Here we have an illustration of what sending them out entailed. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out, notice it's two by two, and gave them authority over evil spirits. Here's the instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Wherever, whenever rather you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, well, just shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. And move on. Move on. They went out and they preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And when we get to Acts chapter 2 and and we have uh, the first sermon, Peter's first sermon, we see Peter stand up and boldly declare to the Jews in Jerusalem, you're the ones that crucified Christ. But if you will repent and believe, you will find forgiveness. So repent and believe. And so what we see here in this being with Jesus and being sent out for Jesus is precisely what Jesus wants for each and every one of us, for me and and for you. That we will be with him, that we will listen to him and obey him. uh, That we will stand up for Jesus and point people to Jesus and tell people the gospel that Christ has died for sins. Now finally, question number four, and i got to move quickly. Who are these guys? And the answer is they're a bunch of nobodies. They're a bunch of no-names. These are not who you would expect Jesus as the Son of God to pick. So for example, Matthew, we met him earlier in Mark as Levi, was a hated tax collector who aligned with the Roman government. Then if you notice in here, there's Simon the Zealot. That means he was a nationalist. That means he hated the Romans. That means he was working to overthrow the Romans. So you've got this guy aligned with the government and a guy that wants to overthrow the government and Jesus brings them together in this weird mix called discipleship. So one guy had his shirt untucked. The other guy had his shirt tucked in, right? They didn't have a lot in common. Most of these apostles were common laborers, fishermen. Uh, workers. They didn't have power, didn't have money, didn't have status. We don't know uh, a lot about, we know, I should say, a a fair amount about Peter and John, and to a lesser extent, we know some about Thomas and Matthew, but most of the rest of these, we know precious little about. They were nobodies. And they were a bunch of flawed nobodies. 
I mean, Peter will deny Jesus three times. Thomas' doubt is so deep and significant. He has been known as Doubting Thomas, becomes known as Doubting Thomas. Judas, you know, will betray Christ, that Christ might be crucified. I mean, imagine a small group member, somebody in your small group, killing the leader. That's what Judas does to Jesus. These men will succumb to fear. Man, they'll trip and they'll stumble and they'll fall. They'll succumb to peer pressure. They will doubt. They will give sway to popular culture. Yet in Jesus' hands, following the experience of the crucifixion and the resurrection, they will change the world. They were nobodies who were deeply flawed, just like you and me. And they all will suffer. Nobodies were flawed who suffer. All of them except, history tells us, all of them except John and Judas who betrayed Christ will be killed because of their faith in Christ. Peter crucified upside down. Peter's brother Andrew. History tells us uh, before he was executed, looked at his executioners and said, this is my privilege, this is my honor to die as my, uh, my Lord has died. And it's almost like Andrew is saying, here's the spot. Uh, execute me here. It's my honor and my privilege to stand for Jesus Christ even in my death. Now let me land this. Each and every one of us is going to die. But when we die, really there's these two different responses to Jesus we see here. We can either respond as the 11 in faith or we can respond like Judas and be deceitful and reject Christ. And I want to encourage you in in light of what we see here to, to understand that these disciples died with their boots on. They stayed strong even to the end. And I want to plead with you to transition from come and see to go and die and to be a man, to be a woman, to be a student, to be whatever, wherever, to die with your boots on. Let's pray. Father, would you give us the grace? Uh, Would you have the mercy on us uh, to deliver us from our fear and our our, uh, tendency to just want to be comfortable and have things easy and, and to wonderfully and boldly stand up for Jesus? Would you do that? For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen.